Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. I'll be reading Isaiah 1 through 7. You might want me to preach on the titles of 9-6. Well, good for you. I had already done that two Advents ago. So the focus won't be so much on verse 6, but on the whole passage here. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him humbly in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is light, that we might see you more truly in ourselves as well in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would see Christ in this text and the character of the kingdom of Christ. We pray that you would fill our hearts with great joy as we hear your word read and preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of God, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It was hard for my feet to stay in my shoes as I read that word, such a great text, such a text that inspires awe and inspires much joy. There's so much hope in these verses. As I mentioned last week, we are going through, in this month, Reformation Month. We are considering different ologies, different fields of theology, different categories of thinking about God and His Word. Sometimes we have taken the five solas of the Reformation. Sometimes we have taken the five points of Calvinism. Sometimes we have considered uh, Reformed worldview and other things. So there's a lot to cover. The list here is selective. We're just looking at five different categories of theology this month. Last week, we considered Reformed protology, which is just a a fancy-schmancy word for saying a Reformed perspective on first things. And we looked last week on God being the eternal God and how God had created the world and it was good, but man had messed things up because of his sin And because of his enmity with God, God had graciously separated sinful man from eventually the wicked by graciously entering into a covenant with man, by rescuing man, Adam and Eve, atoning for them, and promising them victory. That's what we saw last week. And this morning, we are considering part two of that mini-series in this overall series. We're looking at Reformed eschatology. Perhaps many of you know that word, eschatology, more than you do protology. Eschatology seems to be uh, the the talk of the town every single generation. It's really just, uh, the word means it's a study of last things. The last things. And the Bible has a lot to say about last things, about last days, however those days are to be counted. So last week, we saw the promise from Genesis 3.15 that Satan will bruise the Savior's heel, but 
Savior will bruise Satan's head. There will be enmity between God's people and Satan's seed. We saw that last week. But there will also be victory. And I want to look this morning at that trajectory of that victory that God lays out for us. And soon enough, you will see the trajectory is full of hope and all of the biblical optimism that God's Word can give it. Now, we're not going to be entering into all of the weeds this morning, just giving you a 30,000-foot overview of the lay of the land, about the trajectory, about where things are headed. The point here is Christians serve to glorify God and enjoy Him forever with the certainty of Christ's ever-increasing kingdom. I hope you see the theme so far in these main points every single Lord's Day this month. The theme is glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. We saw in in the very beginning of this month that that's why we exist. Our chief, our highest end, is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him. But last week we saw that there is a threat to that glorifying God and full enjoyment of Him, and that's the threefold enmity that we have in the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we do not need to lose heart, as we see in this sermon. We don't need to lose heart because Christ is king and good things are headed. The way, the way that God is moving his creation, the way that God is moving his people is in the right direction. Christ's kingdom is ever-increasing, as we'll see in just a moment. Look at verse 2 with me again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So most of us are familiar with this Advent text, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, in particular verse 6. And in this text, the doors of the kingdom of the Christ child are prophetically opened for us, that we might see who this person is, and that we might see the character of this person's kingdom. Now we ask from last week, When the serpent of old fails to finish off the Messiah, what will the Messiah's rule be like? Will he even have a rule? Of course he will. And we see in these verses the kind of the kingdom of Christ that is before us. Now, one of the gifts of the coming king is to be light. It's a kingdom of light. The people walked in darkness. They've seen a great light. On them has light shone. The people of Israel had been walking in darkness because of their own sin, because of their own enmity with God, because of how they have transgressed God's holy law. And as you study the history of the Israelites, you you see that because of this, they also were afflicted, that God would bring in oppressors to them for a time, to chasten them. And sometimes they were rebellious and they said, forget any of, these, um, any of these means of grace, any of God's shepherding hand, forget them altogether. And so they would suffer. They would put themselves in a place of darkness. But here they are encouraged to lift up their faces to see the sun rising on the horizon. This light will reveal their sin to them in ways that they have not known before. They will see deeper and deeper the gravity of their own sin. They will see more and more truly how they have not loved the Lord with all of their heart, mind, or strength. And that is a good thing for them, because that means that they will see God more truly as well. God does not simply show us our sin and then allow us just to remain in that place of darkness or even that temporary life, but He also shows us the way. He also shows us the Savior. And so this light will also enlighten the shadowy road to reveal to them the path of salvation, which had only been revealed to them in types and shadows in the Old Testament. There were glimmers. There were, there were figures that pointed to the Messiah. You can imagine Simeon in Luke chapter 2, you can imagine his response then, holding Jesus in his arms when he says, I can depart now in peace. Why? Because you have shown me the light that this Messiah is for the Gentiles and a glory for the Israelites. Finally, for Simeon, the Messiah has come and he's holding him in his arms. And this Messiah is brimming with light to the Gentiles. 
No longer will darkness pervade the earth because Christ has come. The light is now. Another blessing mentioned in Isaiah is the future multiplication of Israel. Despite previous promises of the same, Israel needed eyes of faith to see this. And I imagine we also need eyes of faith to see this as well. Abraham was promised that he would be the father of nations, that his offspring would be too many even to count. After all, can our eyes really spot all of the stars in the heavens? Have you tried counting them? Even when there isn't the light on earth and you can just see the dark sky with the, with the stars, try as you might, you cannot count all of them. Or have you really been able to count all of the, the number of the sand on the seashore? Even just grabbing a handful of the sand. It's almost a fool's errand to pick apart every single grain of sand and count them all. And God had challenged Abraham to count the stars and count the sand on the seashore. And he says, that is the number of your offspring. You'll be a father of many nations. He who told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply will surely multiply his offspring. The multiplication of Abraham's offspring does not depend upon Abraham, but upon God who covenanted with Abraham, who covenants with us. Israel was already very numerous in the days of Isaiah. But Israel would be multiplied even more. Israel as a nation was divided during Isaiah's day. But not for the same reason that we would plant churches. We would plant churches today because we can't fit all the people that want to worship here in the same building. And we don't want to have, you know, a thousand services on the Lord's Day. And so we want to spread the wealth, if you will, we want to spread the news, plant churches. That's a good problem to have this side of heaven, is to, is to need to plant the churches. And that's the vision that God gives Isaiah here. There will be more and more multiplication of the people of God. One day, this nation would grow and grow, and so be forced to multiply itself. There wouldn't be a building big enough to house all of Israel's worshipers. This multiplication, just like this light, is even now. Another characteristic of the, king, of the coming kingdom was liberty, freedom. We love liberty, don't we? Fort Liberty, Fort Bragg. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Israel knew well the boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. Israel knew the garments rolled in blood because of the voracious Assyrians. And they would soon know the burning brought about by the Babylonians, Babylonian exile in 586. They would know these things. But they will soon know real freedom. They will soon know true liberty, true freedom from their sins, true freedom from the wrath of God that condemned them, and true liberty to worship God truly on heavenly Zion. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon the Son. Why? To proclaim liberty to the captives, to those who are enslaved by their own sin, to those who have been living in the domain of darkness all their lives. Christ would come to declare liberty to these captives. The yoke of Israel's burden will be carried by the one whose yoke is easy, by the one whose burden is light. This liberty is even now. And to lighten the load of Israel would require someone mightier than his oppressor. And it's exactly what the mighty Messiah is said to come into his kingdom with. No oppressor's rod is mightier than the shepherd's rod. The son is stronger than the strong man. For the son of man binds the strong man, plunders his goods, and dispossesses that snake just as easily as he had done Canaan generations before. This might is even now. The Messiah will also bring wisdom to a world full of folly. 
Israel has known folly, for Israel has gone back and forth from one idol to the next. Like King Rehoboam, Israel has rejected the wisdom of God's word for supposed wisdom, for the wisdom of one's buddies, the wisdom of those friends who tell you what you want to hear. But as true wisdom from above, the light which is Christ will fill the nations with truth. Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty four says, To those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. To know true wisdom is to know Christ. You cannot have true wisdom if you don't have Christ. And this wisdom is even now. Another feature of the divine grace upon Israel is peace. You imagine how Israel has longed for peace. They knew war, not just rumors of war, but one battle after another. And with so many, so many nations, so many people groups, war from outside, war from within, civil war, not so civil war, wars with Canaan, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, Assyria, Philistines, the Edomites, the Egyptians, with one another, and on and on. They had a lack of peace because of a relationship with God that for many of them was only external. It was only formal. It was only because they knew that good things would come to them if they agreed. They cried, peace, peace, but their hearts were full of hostility, both for God and man. Their hearts would need to be changed by the Prince of Peace, our peace, Christ himself. And this peace, which... Isaiah speaks, is even now. Israel has known injustice. And so a feature of the coming kingdom will be justice, will be righteousness. Israel has known injustice from without and from within. Look at verse 7. We see the, the kind of kingdom that this child of hope will usher in. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Israel has known the back-breaking horrors of Egyptian rule. They have felt the strikes of injustice by the rod that is Assyria. They have known one wicked Israelite king after another. Again, who can forget King Rehoboam when he was asked, to lighten the load. You remember what his, what his response was? Sure, I'll lighten the load for you. I'm here to serve you. Of course not. He said, not only will I not lighten your load, I'm going to add more and more weight. You thought the past rule was bad. You see nothing yet. He compounded the problem. He compounded the, his master his rule, and it wasn't a good one. It wasn't full of justice or righteousness, but injustice. So what a relief God provides through this prophetic hope of future justice, of future righteousness. And this righteousness, dear ones, is even now, as the nations prove the glories of Christ's righteous reign. And not only has the Lord increased the nation of Israel, but will have increased its joy too. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Now, this is speaking of the future, but it's past tense. You have increased its joy. This is a prophetic confidence that this is going to happen. It's just like when Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. But that's in John 16, 33, and that's before the cross. And why could he say that with such confidence? Because he knew, without a shadow of doubt, what he was about to do. He would crush Satan. You have increased its joy. With the light permeating the kingdom with Israel being too many to hold in your hand, with liberty leading the reign of the Messiah, with the Messiah who holds all might, all power, 
with the kingdom that knows and pronounces no ignorance and holds no hostility, with the kingdom that knows no injustice and promotes perfect righteousness, what must there be but joy and more and more joy? And this joy is even now and is making its way far as the curse is found, as we will sing after the sermon. And do you see how the kingdom of the seed of the woman differs categorically from the kingdom of Satan? Satan's kingdom knows no light, but the Son's kingdom is nothing but light. We read that in Revelation 22. You only need God to lighten creation. Satan's kingdom has plateaued. The Son's kingdom is ever-growing. The Son's kingdom is ever-advancing. Satan's kingdom is enthralling. It is enslaving. It is captivating in the wrong sense of the word. But the Son's kingdom is liberating. It is freeing. Sets the captives free. The strong man's kingdom is weak. But the Son's kingdom is full of divine might and power. Satan's kingdom has no shred of wisdom, but the Son's kingdom has no shred of folly. It's full of wisdom. The snake's kingdom is enmity. The kingdom of the seed of the woman is peace and perfect peace. The devil's kingdom calls evil good, but in the Son's kingdom, righteousness reigns. Satan's kingdom promises joy, but offers misery. And in the Son's kingdom are pleasures forevermore. Am I the only one excited about this stuff? Come on now. I know you're Presbyterians, but it's okay to be joyful at this incredibly joyful news. But maybe you are not so joyful right now because you say, with Isaiah and hope, I can't wait for that day to happen. Can't wait for it to come. Sure look forward to it. But sadly, it is not right now. That's probably what you might be thinking. And Isaiah offers you a corrective here. You read of these gifts from the king, these characteristics of the kingdom, and you say that's too good to be true. But you have to remember that this text is about the incarnation of Jesus and his present reign. You do know that, don't you? Okay, yes, amen. It is too good. You and I don't deserve this. It really is too good for us. We don't deserve light. We don't deserve this might, this justice, this righteousness, liberty. We don't deserve this peace. This multiplication. We don't deserve any of these. We deserve darkness and decrease, defeat, death. So it is too good for us, and yet it is true. It is too good for you, it's too good for me, and yet God has graciously given you these things. The kingdom is now. Isn't that what John the Baptist was saying? Is that not what Jesus had said when he was here on earth? Proclaiming the kingdom is now. It was future but prophetically present for Isaiah when he was saying this, but it is for us now. One qualifier, it's an important one, which is probably why some here are hesitant to rejoice as fully as the one preaching is right now. This is not fully realized. We don't see all of these characteristics fully. If we did, that would be the indicator that Christ has come. And so we do labor. We have last week for a reason. We have the ongoing struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have wars and rumors of war. We have the ongoing fight against our own sin. We have the ongoing struggle We have the loss of our loved ones. We have the weakening of our bodies. We know all of that. 
But our focus in this text and what God is telling us in his word is not on that present day affliction. God wants to fill our hearts with hope based on where things are headed. So all of this is now, not fully realized, but progressively, slowly, and surely being carried out. Even now you can have the fullness of assurance of God's shining countenance on you. You don't have to wait for Christ to return for you to know that Christ has saved you, that he is for you, that he loves you, that he has created you anew, that he has given you his spirit, that he has assured you of pardon for your sin. You can have that even now. Even now you know the freedom from sin and liberty to love God as you were made to do. You are no longer, as Paul says, slaves to lawlessness, slaves to unrighteousness, but now you are slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness. Even now, you know the strength of the Lord who has given you his spirit of might. You don't have to wait for Christ to come again to know the spirit. You have the spirit indwelling you now. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here worshiping the God, worshiping God. He's the one who regenerated you. He's the one who gave you new life. He's the one who is empowering you to live. He's the one who is empowering you to confess your sins. He's the one who has sealed your redemption. Even now, you know real eternal wisdom from above. You don't have to wait for Christ to come back again in order to have wisdom. You're not living a life of folly until Christ returns. Then you'll suddenly know all things perfectly and you'll be able to act in a manner pleasing to the Lord in all things. That will come one day. You will one day know the Lord with greater accuracy and you will be as wise as you can be as creatures. But even now, you can have that wisdom, which is why James tells us in James 1 to pray for that wisdom from above, knowing that God gives generously to those who ask him. That's why Jesus tells you in Matthew 7, ask, seek, knock, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You need wisdom. Keep coming to me, and I will give it to you here. So you can know this eternal wisdom even now. Folly to to the world, yes, but true truth to us. Even now you know the everlasting peace that comes from the eternal prince of peace. You don't have to wait for Christ to come again in order to know true peace. Paul has told us in his letter to the Ephesians that even now Christ has broken down that dividing wall of hostility. Even now you can know Christ as your peace the one who passes all understanding. Peace with God, primarily. And also that subjective peace that God gives us when we are confused, when we are afflicted, when we need to be released of the the ensnaring power of our own sin from time to time. You can know that peace even now. Look at verse 7 again. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Christ's kingdom is both unending and ever-increasing. And by that, I don't mean that Christ is not king of this area or of that area. If you travel 50 miles east or west, that he's not king over that, but he's king over some. That's not what we're talking about here. Christ is king over heaven and earth even now. But what we're talking about when the, we're talking about the expansion of the kingdom, the increase of the kingdom, we're talking about is a greater acknowledgement of Christ as king, a greater willful submission to Christ as king, worship of Christ as king, and not rebellion. And I said earlier that Satan's kingdom has plateaued. Satan's kingdom, you do know, based on this text and other texts, that Satan's kingdom is not on the rise anymore. It's no longer on the ascendancy. No, it is descending. It has plateaued. It has reached its climax. How can that be? Because Satan was a strong man. And Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, went into the strong man's house and bound the strong man and dispossessed the strong man of his goods. 
You cannot have both the kingdom of darkness growing and the kingdom of light growing. The plateauing kingdom of Satan is precisely plateauing because of the ever-growing kingdom of the Son. This is to say, Satan had his dark days, his glory days, if you will, but they were truly dark. He had his dark days, but the sun's glory days are more and longer. They are unending and ever-increasing. Well, maybe it's just Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 that talks about the increase of the government and of peace. There will be no end. No. But that would be enough, wouldn't it? The whole Bible talks about this. Old Testament, New Testament, and I really had to be selective here. I wanted to just give you more and more and more, but that would have been probably about a 15, 20-page sermon, and my sermons are normally five to six pages, so I wanted to keep it. Okay, but trust me, there's more, and you can read your Bible and you'll see it. There is much, much more. So this unending and ever-increasing kingdom is the testimony of the Old Testament. Look at the law, look at the writings, look at the prophets, and you will see it there. God filled Abraham's bosom with covenant-grounded hope for a future fullness. Consider Genesis 12, verse 3. He says, Abraham, in you, just some of the families of the earth will be blessed. Just some. No, no, no. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Not just moderately fruitful, exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, not into one single nation, nations and kings, not just one king, but kings, kings of these nations will come from you. How can that be if I'm the father of the Jews? Oh, that's right. He is the father of the Jews and the Gentiles. Israelite kings, Gentile kings shall come from the father of the faith, Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 17, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So who owns whom? Does the serpent own the son? Does the serpent's gate possess the son's kingdom? No, no, no. The son wins. The son is victorious. The offspring of Abraham shall possess the gate of Abraham's enemies. Consider the writings. This glorious hope to Abraham remained with the remnant Israel. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. The father, having made the son king, tells the son to ask the father for the nations and for the ends of the earth as his possession. The father says, the son, ask me. For the nations. Ask me for the ends of the earth as your possession. Well, maybe the son didn't ask. Maybe the son looked at the father and said, That's a great gift, but I'd rather not ask you for it. All right. Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. The suffering Savior, after dying, is given the ends of the earth. All the families of the nations shall worship before him. He rules over all. That's the law. That's the writings. Just a smattering. What are the prophets? In addition to our very clear text in Isaiah, we have other prophetic promises. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will stand above all the rest, and all the nations shall flow to it to be taught its ways. Or consider Isaiah, Isaiah 11, verse 9. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so tell me this. How much of the sea is water? It's all water. What shall we expect earth to be? Well, full of the knowledge of the Lord. And this is not the God-implanted knowledge that everyone has because he is an image bearer. This is the saving knowledge of the Lord. Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel stands in a vision. In this vision, he's standing at the door of the temple, and he notices water issuing from below to the east. And he sees this water 
And at first, it's just a trickle. And then the water rises to his ankles. And then the water keeps rising to his knees. Then it keeps rising to his waist. It keeps rising to such a degree that he cannot pass. He is so overwhelmed by this water, and it goes out, and it houses, it gives life to the trees. It gives life to creation outside the temple. It increases. In Daniel 2, we have a stone. It's cut out by no human hands from the great image, and this stone becomes a great mountain, and this great mountain fills the whole earth. The Old Testament eschatology is one full of hope, and an ever-widening rule of the Christ overall, an ever-widening acknowledgement of the Christ as king, an ever-widening worship of Christ as the Lamb. Now, if that's just Old Testament testimony, and you know that with the coming of Christ, things get better, surely Christ must also share this view, and his apostles must also share this view. And if you are reasoning in that way, then you are right on the money. Christ knew this about his mission, about his righteous reign. He spoke these things in parables. We saw Mark 4. You can check out Matthew 13. In Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, he tells us that the kingdom is like it. It is small, it is seemingly insignificant, and it is barely noticed for a time. And that's how Christ was. That's how his kingdom was when he first came on the earth. But then... It grows, and it grows, and it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree that houses creation. And then in the parable 11, we see that the kingdom, like leaven, demonstrates extensive and pervasive growth and influence until all is leavened. Consider Jesus' words in John 12, verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's talking about the effect of his crucifixion. When he's lifted up, when he's crucified, one effect of that crucifying work is the drawing of all people to himself. Jew and Gentile will come to him. Is it any wonder then that he commissions his disciples to go and to teach and to baptize and to disciple the nations. All authority has been given to the Son. Therefore, we have every confidence to go, to teach, to baptize, to disciple the nations, and not to keep this light under a bushel. No. It's the Gospels, the epistles that develop this eschatological hope as they reflect on Christ's current reign. Consider just Colossians 1.12. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness, and we've been delivered into the Son's kingdom. We were in the domain of darkness. We are no longer in the domain of darkness. Praise be to Christ, who is King, who has enlightened our hearts that we might see Him. He has liberated us from that domain of darkness, he has transferred us into a different kingdom. And as we speak, even now, Christ is continually dispossessing Satan of his servants. Satan's kingdom is not on the rise. 1 Corinthians 15, 22-26, The risen Christ, when he returns, will deliver the kingdom to his Father. Only after he has destroyed every rule and authority only after he has put all enemies under his feet. That's pivotal. This time between the first coming and the second coming is the time of his victorious kingdom. It is a time while Christ is subduing all his and our enemies, and he does that over and over again, primarily through conversion. He takes us, who were formerly hostile to him, and he changes our hearts. He takes us who were at enmity with him and makes us friends by grace. When he returns, he is not instituting his kingdom, but he's given it back to his father. He has already instituted his kingdom. And you know that because this meal before us is 
the covenant, the new kingdom, in his blood. Revelation, the end of the Bible, ends with this hope fulfilled. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. Before the throne are multitudes upon multitudes of nations, of tribes, of peoples, of languages, all crying out in worship to the Lamb of God. These are not a, a, few, people from, a few people from this nation, just a, a handful from that people group. Nations, peoples, languages, groups before God. In Christ, the offspring of Abraham, all the families of the earth are blessed. This does not mean that no one's going to hell. Christ's words, his many words on the eternal destiny of those who aren't in him are very clear. If you are not trusting in Christ for your salvation, you do not get to be with him for all eternity. And you will suffer under the wrath of God for all eternity. But these promises, which Christ is fulfilling, tell us of the wider scope, the wider extent, the ever-increasing kingdom of the Son. That when Christ comes back, he's not coming to just a few people kind of huddled in a corner, just pleading for him to come back, just waiting for him to come back, rescuing the day. No. Those who will be in the corner are the enemies who have not bowed the knee, who are going to tremble before the sun, lest they perish in the way. The sun asked a question. When he returns to the earth, will he find faith? Yes. Of course, our, our typical response is, we expect, he's actually saying no. But at the point of that, we're not going to look at that text right now, but you have Christ does expect there to be faith. In Christ, the offspring of Abraham, all the families of the earth are blessed. Because of Christ, the gates of Hades will not prevail against his kingdom. Christ will possess the gate of his enemies. Christ surely asked the Father for the nations as his heritage, as his possession. As the gospel goes out to all the nations, they shall hear, they shall be taught, they shall trust in Christ. As the Spirit of Pentecost accompanies this gospel proclamation, as we go and tell it on the mountain, the living waters of Christ's heavenly temple flow from a trickle to ankle deep to knee deep to waist deep to a fullness, overwhelming us, overwhelming us with the waters of regeneration. As Christ, the living stone cut by no human hand, broke the back of Rome, the solid rock that is his kingdom is slowly becoming, but surely becoming, the great mountain filling the earth. The hope of an ever-increasing kingdom of God, dear ones, should fill our praise, our prayers, our proclamation. Oh, praise your king that as far as the curse is found, the joy of salvation will fill the world. And what area has been unaffected by the curse? No area. All areas have been affected by the curse. And so what area will be unaffected by the joy of salvation? As far as the curse is found, do we believe it? Do we believe it? We sing it. We will sing it. Do we sing it with faith? This isn't apple pie in the sky kind of faith, okay? I've given you God's word to show you the trajectory of where things are heading. Do we believe it? You can praise your king. Pray with all heavenly hope. Why do we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we have faith? that he will actually do what he tells us to pray for? That his kingdom will come here on earth? That it will come in fullness as it is done in heaven? Nobody challenges his will in heaven. But even Christians will challenge his will here on earth. Let us keep praying 
with faith. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can proclaim the gospel of the king to the ends of the earth, knowing that more and more and more than you can imagine will hear and believe. Herman Bobbing says, Christ came not to destroy the works of the Father, but only to destroy the works of the devil. This is his Father's world. Let us never forget. Dear ones, fill your hearts with this hope. He has rescued you. Just consider how he has dealt with you individually. Especially you who have lived many decades. You who are in the winter of your life, if you will. He saved you. He took that heart of stone and he replaced it with a heart of flesh. And do you struggle still against sin? Absolutely. You struggle against your flesh. Of course, we all do. Do you still have doubts? Absolutely. Tonight, Lord's Day evening worship service, we're looking at Psalms 42 and 43. And there's there's a struggle. There's a struggle to hold on to, to hope. That's why three times the psalmist says to himself, hope in God. And he asks the question, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? But consider how God has not left you. Consider how God has not forgotten you. Consider how God has saved you and he loves you. And he's saying, I'm not letting go. And for decades... He has worked in your life, slowly, but surely. And you look back and you say, I am not what I will be one day, but I am not what I once was. And that's not because of me, but it's because of God who works in me and through me. If he does that for you as an individual... Have we forgotten that God is a God of covenant? Does he not do that with you and your family? Surely he does. Well, maybe it's just the people of God, the the Jews. No, that was the error that the Jews had been suffering under. It wasn't that salvation was just for the Jews. Book of New Testament. Israelites have to get this in their heads. It's not just for us Israelites, it's for the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles are coming in. Christ is coming to get his sheep. And those sheep are in many nations. Far as the curse is found, the shepherd will go and get every last one of them. He has transferred transformed your heart and is working in your heart even now. Surely he will do that with your family. Surely he will do that with this nation. Surely he will do that with this world. And how do we know it? The end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not because of your zeal. It's not because of all the spiritual disciplines that you do every single day. Although God certainly works in those and through those. It's not the zeal of Michael Mock will do this. He's so energetic about preaching the gospel. It's not the zeal of that mom who faithfully gets up in the morning and goes about homeschooling her children. It's not the zeal of that man who's working in the secular world, if you will, just trying to be faithful and he can give his 80 years of zealous labor. No. It isn't the zeal of me, you, any of us. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Isaiah assures us that the Christ child will do all that we hope he will do. And if we're honest, he'll do a lot more than we have ever asked or imagined. We will be surprised by joy, won't we? We know this because fueling the fulfillment of the messianic mission is divine zeal. You can't get more zeal than divine zeal. When all that is God is set on a project, you know he does what he has set his mind to do. 
He always accomplishes his will. No one can thwart his purpose. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Like the runner who is zealous for the finish line, who paces himself, sprints at times, jogs at others, but is fully committed to run and finish the race, our God is zealous for his glorious goal. It was zeal for the house of the Lord that consumed Christ. Did Christ accomplish what he set his mind to do? The text says, Luke says that he set his mind like flint. He was headed to Jerusalem. He was headed to the cross. No one was going to veer him off the path. Christ came in. He cleansed the temple with his spotless blood on the cross and is now on the move. And we ask, where shall he go? We know where he has been. And we know where he is headed. You read the book of Acts. He went to Jerusalem. And then he went to Judea. Then to Samaria. And is headed to the ends of the earth. The very thing that the Father asks him to ask him for his possession. The ends of the earth. There are other sheep not of this fold, that he told his disciples that he needed to go and get. Will the shepherd of the one flock of God lose any of these Jewish and Gentile sheep? Is he weak? Is he not all-seeing? Is he not all-wise? Is he not all-good? The whole creation is groaning for redemption. Will grace restore nature? Or are the thorns and thistles too spiky for the one who's crowned with the crown of thorns? Shall the creator hear the calls of his good creation and ignore them? Shall he acquire what his heart is set on? It is impossible to stop the man who defeated death. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you so much for this word of hope. We know that There is still much work in progress, but we are thankful that you never abandon the project. You never abandon your creation. You never abandon your people, that there are many people still to come to Christ. And even us, we know, Lord, that we are not finished projects. We know that you are continuing to work in us and through us. And so we pray, O God, that you would continue to transform our lives, and we have the hope that you will do that that you will take us from one degree of glory to the next until all is done. We thank you. We pray these things with faith. In Christ's name, amen.